0: Thanks for listening to our messages from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources and information on connecting people to Jesus for life change, visit us online at southbridgefellowship.com. Just here in that job description, we know that people do hard things. Mom, you're a great testament to that. You carry around that little bag, some of you got little kids, and you've got a bag you carry around with you that literally is like a survival pack, right? Like people could live off of that for months, you're ready for every situation, you do all this hard stuff for your kids. And then you think about other people in the world that have done hard things. Military, going through boot camp, Doing some of that, extreme sports, have you seen some of these BMX, people jumping out of stuff and off of stuff and into stuff, mountain climbing, like think about the intense environment that people get into. I saw a movie about two or three months ago called Everest, it was actually made in 2015, some of you may have seen it in the past. I probably don't need to say a lot about it for you to know what it's about if it's called Everest. Okay, two of you got it, all right. (laughs) The way the movie starts is they start telling you facts about Mount Everest, And they tell you that in 1953, the first two people to summit, to get to the peak, the top of Everest, both did it in the same year, and they were professional climbers. And that for the next 40 years, only professional climbers even attempted to get to the top of Everest. And one in four of them died, 25%. But then around 1992, 1993, what happened, there was a guy who started, he started a commercial expedition where he would take amateur climbers up to the top of this mountain. And for four years, he took 19 climbers up there with zero fatalities. But the movie is about a deadly expedition, where they were going up to the peak of this mountain. The way the movie starts is it starts introducing you to the different characters. Now, they're amateurs, meaning they don't do this for a living, but they were all experienced climbers. One guy was a mailman, another guy was a writer for a climbing magazine, he was a journalist, and different people had been to different spots. One lady that was on the trip had already been to the summit. There's seven major summits, they'd already been to six of them, and this was the seventh one for her, and and so they start this movie off introducing you to these characters, and they end up in this restaurant, and the guy that's in charge of the entire group is reading from a brochure, and I'll just share with you what he read to them. It's a brochure for their group, it's called Adventure Consultants. He says, for those of you who dare face their dreams, adventure consultants offer something beyond the power of words. (laughs) And then he pauses. And he says, do you know why we don't put the words in our brochure? It's because everything else is just pain. <laughs> and they all start laughing. Like they paid a lot of money to be at this thing. And then he leans over to this one guy who's one of the guides. And he says, show him your toe. And he pulls out this nub. His toe's gone because of frostbite. And he starts telling them about what the experience is going to be like. And he goes over to a map that has Mount Everest on it. And he says, your body was not meant to survive above a certain altitude. The cruising altitude of a 747 plane. And he talks about how we're going to go above that altitude and you will start slowly dying. The goal is to get you to the top of the mountain and back down to the bottom before that happens. I thought, that's a good goal. And then he shares with them, we're going to spend the next 40 days training your mind and training your bodies for this climb. So they spend, just think about that, 40 days. They spend a bunch of money, 40 days out of their lives to go on this mountain, start getting ready for this, preparing, they get a camp, and they go to different spots, they come back down, they go to different spots, and they were showing one of the training days and this guy is out there, he's climbed a bunch of mountains before, he's done this, and they laid this ladder. The ladder looked like it had been from Home Depot, so they had me right there. They laid this ladder over this valley, and you're supposed to walk on the ladder, and you could see down, and I thought to myself at that moment, watching this movie is as close as I'm ever getting to getting on that ladder. And then an avalanche happened while he was on the ladder. And the guy fell, he grabbed it, he didn't fall and die. And they got him back up, and then they're talking that night at the base camp. This is in 1996. So cell phones aren't quite the same. The guy that's the leader of the whole deal, he found out that his wife was pregnant months before this happened, he was planning on getting back right before she delivered the baby, so he gets a fax that tells him that he's having a little girl. And they start talking about that. They start talking about the difficulty that climbing like this is on a family. They're talking about all the money that it costs, all the pain that it is. And the guy that's the journalist in the group says, okay, it's all out on the table, I have to ask. It hurts, it's dangerous, ruins relationships. And then he asks a question that is the question. It's the question I want us to ask today. It's the question you should ask about everything you do. He says, why? Why do you do this? Why do you climb this mountain? And so I could say to you moms, we saw the job description, why? Why do you do it? Why do you do all the work that you do? Why all the sacrifices? Why all the efforts? Some of you think about your job. Why? Some of you, you come to this church. Why? The things that you do. If we, if we zoomed out on our lives and just kind of had a droned view, a lot of us, we'd look like ants in a maze. We're, just running, we're, all, we're all busy. There's no doubt you have stuff to do. Why do you do the things that you do? And underlying that question is this, what's the driving passion that puts you on that pursuit? And I hope that you all answer that question. Lord willing, today, before we're done with this passage of Scripture, but at least hopefully before you die, otherwise you live a meaningless life. And Paul tells us what our why should be in our passage of Scripture today in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And so I want you to be asking yourself, what is my why? Or if you like a different language, what's the passion that drives all of my pursuits in life? And Paul tells us what it should be in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, if you're a follower of Jesus. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I'm glad you're here. I'm going to give you an opportunity to trust Jesus as your Savior at the end of this message. But if you're a follower of Jesus, that's really who I'm talking to today, those who are followers. So if you have your Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, please join me. We've been doing this series, you can see from the logo behind me, called Letters to RDU. And you may wonder, if you're a guest, like you're reading a book called Corinthians, why are you calling the series Letters to RDU? It's because there's so many parallels between what's happening in Corinth at the time when this letter was written and what's happening in RDU today. Let me just give you an idea of what was happening there. They were really successful people. They were really sensual people, the highly materialistic people. But they were people that this church started in the midst of this community that's successful, overly sexualized, very materialistic, and they're wondering how do I live as a follower of Jesus? And Paul, the guy who started this church, writes in this letter. He starts addressing problems they were having. One of the problems they were having was division in the church. How many people have seen that? And what was happening in their church was people were making a bigger deal about the messenger of the gospel than the message of the gospel. And so what Paul, he was one of the guys they were making a big deal about, instead of going, hey, look at me, I'm awesome, I'm the celebrity pastor, he says, no, this whole thing's about Jesus. Sometimes we can forget church is about Jesus, can't we? Is church about Jesus say amen if you believe that? Amen. And he says, I, I came to you to preach Christ, and Christ crucified And if you would get that, it would make a difference. In all these different situations in your life, he starts to talk to them about those situations. Your marriage, your singleness, your sexual lives, your your daily lives, and start talking about their circumstances because people were trying to get this. This is wild how different they were than us. They were trying to find contentment in their circumstances. Isn't that crazy? And Paul tells them, no, it's in your Savior. And he points them to eternity and says, all this stuff is passing away. Keep your eyes on eternity, which means keeping your eyes on Christ. That should create an undivided devotion in our lives. We talked about that in chapter 7. And then chapter 8, you know what he did? He was talking about eternity, and then boom, he crashes it down to earth. He starts talking about a daily issue for them, meat sacrificed to idols, which we're going, that doesn't matter at all. But then he talks about money, and then he uses the same principle. And the principle is we should have a, a ministry mentality rather than a me-first mentality. And then he, what he does in chapter 9 is he weaves together eternity and every day. Look at how he does it. I'll start at the end of the passage. We'll, we'll go back up to where we left off last week in verse, nine, verse 12. But I'm going to start reading verse 23. So if you've got a copy of the Bible, verse 23, chapter 9. I do it all. Do what all? He's just been talking about forsaking his right to have a, a salary from this church because they were making such a big deal about the messenger in the church. He took a salary from other churches, but he wouldn't take it from this church. Do not be an obstacle to the gospel? Became a Jew to the Jews, a Gentile to Gentile, the Gentile, to the weak, not meaning physically weak, weak conscience. People thought everything was sin, so it became weak. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know, like you should know this, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? Here's your command. So run that you may obtain it. Run to win the prize. Every athlete, verse 25, exercises self-control in all things. Think about that, sleep, diet, exercise self-control in all things. But Why? They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we, an imperishable, so I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body, and I keep it under control, lest, after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So he gives the positive that he wants to win the prize. He gives the negative. He doesn't want to be disqualified. But what he does with this analogy is he gets right into their everyday lives. Don't you love how Jesus does that with, like, farmers? He talks about sowing seed with fishermen. He talks about fish. With the Corinthians, he talks about sports. And the reason why he does that with the Corinthians is because the Corinthians love sports, kind of like RDU, there's so many parallels. And so he talks to them, they they had two famous games. One of them was the Olympic games, we still have that. Happened every four years, back then you didn't bid for it. It happened in Greece every year. And they had another one that was the Ismian games. They had a boxing and running and different sports. And that would happen every two years and that happened basically in Corinth, just outside of Corinth. And remember Paul, he's a tent maker. So if he's not taking any money from the church, he's got to make money somehow. He makes tents and he sells them. Do you know what happened at the Isthmian Games in Corinth? Paul was probably there in AD 51 when this took place. They'd have the games. All the athletes would come. Athletes, by the way, would make a pledge. And their pledge is for 10 months. No wine, no sex. They go vegetarian, have a special diet. Now think about that. 10 months. That's not that big of a deal now. If you're going to be an Olympic athlete, think about how long they... That's like their whole life. Some of them, you know, think about the different events. Some of the events are like two seconds long. Like your whole li- years of your life towards this. And Paul's going, We've, I've seen this. I've been there. And they're doing it to win a wreath. And the wreath at the Isthmian game, sometimes it was a pine wreath, depends on what year he's referring to. And, and one time they changed it to salary. Which I thought, do they have like budget cutbacks? They couldn't afford the pine? Like what happened there? But what Paul's doing here is he's speaking right into their, it'd be like for us. We got the Carolina Hurricane fans. Here. So you got the front row. All right. Everybody, Carolina folks, unless you're committed to another team, like that should be your team right now. And they're playing, they're playing to win the cup. They want to win the Stanley Cup. It's hockey. Those of you who don't know what I'm talking about. Like we're in the South. They didn't even do that. No, we have a hockey team here. They're in the playoffs. They're playing for the Stanley Cup. You ever, if you've ever, if you've never watched, just at least watch one playoff game. You should watch a game. No matter what, appreciate the athletic ability that they have. Because they got hand-eye coordination with the stick and all the stuff they do with that puck, and the goalie's catching it, and this flying, you can't even keep track of how fast, oh, by the way, they're on ice. (laughs) They're ice skating while they do it. Like, let's just make this, who invented that game? Let's make this really dangerous, trying to take each other's heads off, play the puck, and then let's just kick it up a notch and make it on ice, okay? and They're all great skaters. You got your forwards, they try to score goals. You got your defenseman; they try to stop goals. You got your goalie who's back in the net. And, and just think about if you're watching the Carolina Hurricanes, one of our, our main guys, Sebastian Ajo, scores a lot of goals. Imagine at the opening faceoff, they drop the puck, and he decides to show off his skating skills and try to, to score a goal. And so he goes figure skating. He's on a triple axel, do the thing, going across. I don't even know what figure skaters do, but they're just like twisting around and doing all that stuff. And he probably can. And some of you know Jacob Slavin. He's, in our, he's a believer, and he's in our community, and, and maybe he sees you, and he skates over. And he's like, let's get a selfie, instead of trying to stop the goals. And the goalie is back there. He's like, I didn't eat the pregame meal, and I'm hungry. And he stuck some chips on the back of the goal, so he turns around, just messing with this. What? If, as a fan, you'd be like, what are you doing? Like, focus. I want you to, you're not even playing, but you're, like, intense. We got to win this game, Sebastian. Come on. Think about how focused they are on scoring goals, stopping goals, laser focus on the puck. So why? So they can win the cup. Okay. They don't even get to keep it, by the way, if you watch hockey. They carry it around for a year. They go do some fun stuff with it. They get their names. Who won the Stanley Cup three years ago? Boston Bruins? That's a good guess. I don't know if it's right. Five years ago? Seven years ago? They get, they get some glory. They get fame. It's not like the cup just disintegrates like you'd think of a, a wreath. The, the, the athletes that were competing in the Isthmian Games, the Olympic Games, they weren't doing it because of the wreath. They want the glory. They want the fame. They want joy. But it fades. And Paul's saying in this passage, you should go harder than the athletes. Think about their diet. Think about all the stuff they do. You should go harder than them. Why? Because what we're talking about is eternal. See, they've got an aim. He says, I don't run aimlessly. They've got an aim. They've got an aim, but it's a temporary aim. Now listen to this, follower of Jesus. You want to write down points? Some of you take notes. Here's your first point is this. You want to know your why? As a follower of Jesus, you must have an eternal aim. You must have an aim that makes a difference beyond this life. The way you live your life here should impact how eternity ends up. You must have an eternal aim. That's what Paul's saying here in verse 24 when he says, Do you not know that a race all the runners run? Everybody gets in. And here's the problem for Christians. Many of us here are happy just to participate. You want your participation ribbon. I'm a Christian, I'm on the team. That's great, wear your jersey. And Paul's going, no, you play to win, run to win. It reminds me, I'm actually a pretty big football fan. Some of you might remember this, this is an older older story now, but Herm Edwards, he's now the coach of Arizona State College football team. Real charismatic guy, played defensive back in the NFL. He one time coached the New York Jets. But do you remember that? The Jets have been bad like forever. Sorry if you're a Jets fan. And he was coaching them. They were 2-5, and five, and this is how bad they were. They had just lost a game to the Cleveland Browns. Isn't that terrible? Like, it's like bye week, Cleveland Browns. Two bye weeks. It's awesome. No. It's like they're playing the Cleveland Browns. They lost that game, went 2-5. and five. On Tuesday afterwards, he said he went in, and it was normal. just part of his job. He's supposed to go meet with the press. And the players aren't there that day. And he wasn't really thinking about the players. He's just kind of going through the motions of what he's supposed to do, his obligations as a job. And a reporter asked him a question that basically said, you know, you're two and five. It's lost to the Browns. They essentially said, are you done? And he said, and it became a famous, he's written a book, I believe. I haven't read the book, but he's written a book. that has got this. He said, hello, hello. I think so. he's got a real high voice. Hello, you play to win the game. And then he backed up and he looked at him like, are you really asking me that question? He said, you don't play to play the game. You play to win the game. It's interesting what happened. He said he didn't do it to motivate his players. It's just such a, like, an obvious thing to him. They ended up winning seven of their next nine games. They won the division, ended up beating Peyton Manning and the Colts in the playoffs that year, 41-0. to They lost to the Browns! You know what I think might have happened there? They lost their focus. Paul's, Paul's pointing out to these Corinthians, have you, you've lost your focus. Like, you just think about all this stuff that's going on in your life. Don't forget why. What is your why, Christian? Don't forget Why? You have an eternal aim. He's, you don't, you're, not, you're not happy just to be on the team. You play, this analogy breaks down because it says here, and only one wins the prize. Here's the reality as followers of Jesus Christ. No, we can all win the prize. But you've got to run to win. You play to win. You play to win the game. You don't just play to play the game. And he says here, so I don't run aimlessly. Verse 26, that word for aimlessly there is for somebody who has no fixed goal or they've lost sight of the finish line. And here's the reality of what happens for many of us in our Christian lives is that we start well, and either no one told us what the aim was, or we forget, and we start just busy in ourselves, doing good stuff a lot of times, going to church, listening to Christian podcasts, driving around in your car, working your job, being a good neighbor, being moral, saving for retirement, giving money away. But why, why, why? And why here? Remember what Paul's doing in chapter nine is he's tying verse, chapter seven and chapter eight together. And so he starts in chapter seven and he starts telling them, you gotta have an eternal focus. Like you're focused on your circumstances and you think if you got a divorce, you'd be happy. You think if you got a different job, you'd be happy. You think if you did these things, you'd be happy. And he goes, no, 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 you gotta look at your savior. Remember verse 29, chapter seven, if you got your Bible, you can glance back at it. It says the time has grown short. Verse 31, the world is passing away. Look to eternity, remember chapter eight. Boom. Come crashing down. Look at eternity. Look at everyday life. Talking about meat sacrifice to idols. You gotta have a ministry mindset, not a me first mindset, really destroys our pride in chapter eight. And then he talks about his own life at the beginning of chapter nine, why he's got the right to be paid for preaching the gospel. He says if I've you have spiritual blessing, other people have done it, they've gotten paid by you, but I'm not gonna take money from you. It's an obstacle. He gives all these reasons why it's right for him to take it, but he still doesn't take it. And then verse 12, it was the last verse we read last week. I'm going to read that verse, and I'm going to read the first verse we read this week because it shows us the aim. If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Verse 12. Nevertheless, we've not made use of this right, but we endure anything. Rather than anything, we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Then verse 23, jump down. I do it all. Do what all? Become a Jew to the Jew, a Gentile to the Gentile. To the weak, I become weak. He'd give up his right. He'd give up a salary. If, it, as far as me is concerned, I'll become a vegetarian. I'll do the, the same thing an athlete would do. Like I'm gonna, I'll work that way. Why? Verse 23. I do it all for the sake of the gospel. 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 Verse 12. Gospel. Verse 23. In fact, why don't you go ahead and count? Those of you who like to study your Bible on your own, count right now in between verses 12 and verse 23. How many times do you see the word gospel? It's kind of a theme there. While you're counting, the answer is eight. Um, depending on your translation, but you got the right translation. Just kidding. I don't believe in the right translation. There's eight times between verses 12 and 23 we see the word gospel. Those of you who like to take notes, you might run to write this down. The gospel gives us our eternal aim. It's not some mystical thing you have to go discover and pray about. The gospel actually gives us our eternal aim. And Paul says that we should work so hard in it that we would work harder than an athlete. Now think about how hard athletes work. Think about that. I'm going to read you, I, 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 got a, I jotted down some notes uh, from this week from the, the diet of an Olympic athlete most of us have probably heard of, Michael Phelps. Maybe you've heard this before. For breakfast he eats three fried egg sandwiches with cheese, not lactose intolerant, lettuce, tomatoes, fried onions, mayonnaise. Then he drinks two cups of coffee. He's not done. And then he consumes a five-egg omelet a bowl of grits, three slices of French toast. He's not on the low-carb diet either. With powdered sugar and three chocolate chip pancakes. That's breakfast, by the way. That's not for the week, okay? <laughs> for lunch, he eats a pound of pasta. Like I said, not low-carb, pound of, one pound of pasta. Supersize that. Two large egg ham sandwiches on white bread with mayo and cheese. He then drinks about thousand calories worth of energy drinks. Now, next time you drink an energy drink, look at how many how many energy drinks is this guy drinking? For dinner, he eats another pound of pasta and a full pizza. Oh yeah, why don't I have a, for a side? Why don't I have a pizza with that? A whole one, followed by another 1,000 calories of energy drinks. Now listen, you might think to yourself, this guy's huge. Look, he's six foot four. When he's training for swimming, he weighs 164 pounds. Let that sink in. Listen, if you ate that diet and you're 6'4", you'd weigh 640 pounds, okay? <laughs> here's why, here's why he can do that. The guy burns 12,000 calories a day. Because when he's training for swimming, he swims, listen to this, swims, not walks, I'm talking about your Fitbit, not runs, not on a bike, swims 50 miles a week. But that's not all of his training. He's out of the pool. He's doing muscle training. He does weight training. does body resistance training. He's burning 12, six hours a day. Why? For a medal? You know what's going to happen? As great as Michael Phelps is, maybe the greatest Olympian the United States has ever had. We will forget him. It's temporary. And Paul says what you're going after here is eternal. Okay, so it's eternal. But why? why do, what's the aim? He gives us at least two answers in the passage. We've already read them, but I'll share them with you. The first one is this, that people might be saved, to save people. And so, in verse 22, he says, to the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. It's interesting, if you read between verses 19 and 22, he's saying the same thing about different people groups over and over, you might count the words there again. How many times does he say the word win? The answer is five five times in those i I want to win these people, I want to win these people. Now, that can be tough language for some of us. Because if you hear win, and you're not a highly competitive person, you might think, well, then I'm going to lose. Like, I, I'm defeated. That We always think in that analogy. But you got to remember, Paul's already got the victory. It's the gospel that's the motivator. Jesus won the victory. Do you know what the gospel is? The gospel is the good news. The Greek word, euangelion, good news. If the gospel gives us the aim, what's the good news? There's lots of good news in the Bible. He's talking about one specific good news. It's what, it's what our worship leader said this morning when he was talking about Philippians chapter 2. When Jesus put on flesh and he came and he dwelt among us, do you know what he did? Paul says here he became a Jew to the Jews, he became Gentile to the Gentiles. Do you know what Jesus did? He became one of us. So think about that. God in the flesh, and he learns what it's like to be tired. God knows learns what it's like to be tired. God learns what it's like to be tempted and don't let this just float over your head as some preacher talk to be tempted in every way that you're tempted. So, what were you tempted with this week? And Jesus knows what that temptation's like. To be impatient, prideful. If anybody had the right to be prideful, Jesus? To be short, to be jealous, to lust? he was tempted in every way as we are tempted, but did not sin. So that when he went to the cross and died for sin, he wasn't dying for his own sin. He was dying for your sin and my sin. And after three days, he rose from the dead and he offers life. That's the gospel. And so when you share the gospel with somebody, and some of you might need to hear this because of your personality type, you're not trying to win an argument with them. That's not what win means. You're not winning over them. You're winning for them. The victory has already been established at the cross of Christ. And when you win them to Christ, as you're showing that they need to be rescued, that language that's used here in verse 22 is saved. That's a tough language for some people too, like saved from what? And we get a hard time with it, and so we try to psychologize it or we try to make it emotional or like the meaning of life. No, you're being saved from the wrath of God because we all sin and we fall short of the glory of God. And the, the, the wages of sin is death. And what death is a separation from God, that God pours out his wrath on sin and on sinners. And so, how do you tell people that, though, when they don't think they need to be saved? I saw a story in the news a few weeks ago, some of you may have seen it, where a cruise ship actually had to have people rescued off of it. Did you see that? It was a Norwegian cruise line, and they were just off the coast of Norway, and I I was thinking about that. They showed the, the, some people had their cell phones out and did some video, and what happened was the cruise ship, the motor stopped working, they lost power. And then bad storm came through, 26-foot waves, and so the boat was like moving, and so people had their phones out, and it was like all the furniture slides to one side, ceiling tiles are falling, people are screaming. But I think, think about what it's like to get on a cruise ship. All you can eat, food, spas, like you're getting on the boat, and it's like the lap of luxury, everything you could want. Imagine if you walked up to somebody who's getting on a cruise ship and was like, I want to tell you how you get rescued from this boat. You're like, rescued? Give me a pina colada. Are you kidding me? Like, I'm gonna stay here forever. is amazing. And that's sometimes what it's like to share the gospel in RDU. People have a lot of stuff, and they're very educated. What are the needs? And it's like you're telling them, the storm's coming, because you know why? Because we're all going to stand a judgment seat before God. There will be a judgment day. But they're going, huh? I'm going to have another ham sandwich. Like Michael Phelps, he's, you know, a bunch of pancakes with it. I'm going to try those pancakes out. I mean, he's an Olympic athlete. I'm just going to go for it. And we just, all these wants, and we miss the great, how do you help someone know the need? That's what Paul's saying that he's doing here in verses 19 through 22. To the Jew, I become like a Jew. My rights like, I know I don't earn anything by obeying the law, but if by submitting to the law before the Jews helps me win the Jews to Jesus, I don't, I'll deny my preferences. I'll get rid of those rights. As long as I don't make me sin against Jesus. because the Gentiles, I'm not going to make them seem like they have to be under the law. I know you don't have to be under the law. I'm under grace. I'm going to be like a Gentile to the Gentiles. To the weak, now the weak, the weak struggle. They haven't been taught. doesn't mean you just acquiesce to all of them. You've got to teach them. But, but I'm not going to go, if they think that eating meat sacrificed to idols is worshiping an idol, I'm not going to eat that meat so that I can win them to Christ. I'll deny my rights. And Do you know what he's doing here? It's real simple. And you don't know how this all weaves together, chapter 7, chapter 8, and chapter 9 all come together? He's being a follower of Jesus. This is not super Christianity here. Do you know what Jesus says in the Gospels? Multiple times. Mark, Luke, you can read it. Luke chapter 9, Mark chapter 8. Go look it up. Jesus says, if anyone, not if people who write books in the Bible, not if super Christians, not if the missionary, like if anyone wants to follow me, here's what it looks like. Take up a cross, deny yourself, come after me. You know what Paul's saying here in this passage? This is what I do. I'm taking my cross. I'm willing to deny all my rights. If it means getting a salary, if it means eating vegetarian, if it means being like a Jew, if it means... I'll deny all that stuff. Why? I'm following him. Do you know what this whole section is about? Chapter 7. And eventually we're going to get to chapter 11 and verse 1. And what Paul says there is, follow me as I follow Christ. Paul's not saying everything in my life is perfect, but as I follow Christ, follow that. And Do you know what Christ did? Christ put on flesh came here, dwelt among us, learned our questions, learned our temptations, realized what it was like to be one of us, and died. Do you know what his mission was? Luke chapter 19 verse 10 says it really clearly, I came to seek and save the lost. Do you know what your eternal aim is? It's eternal life. But you're not trying to win it for you. Jesus won it for you on the cross. You're trying to win people to that eternal life. Your eternal aim is eternal life for lost people, Why? Why? So you could save some. We're on the same mission Jesus was on. We've got one job. We've been told to go make disciples. And we make it really messy. We make it really confusing. Because there's daily life and there's all this stuff. And what about my marriage? And how's my marriage? And go, what about my job? And should I change jobs? And should I, what about this? And don't forget the aim. Why? Why do you climb? Do you know what happened? Do you know what happened in that movie when he asked the why question? The woman who had been to the summit of six other mountains Do you know what she said? Well, because I've done the other six, I have to do seven. Do you know what the journalist said? That's not an answer. That's not a why answer. That's not a moat. Why any summit? Why do you climb the mountain at all? And Paul's saying here, people need to be saved. And I'm I'm following Jesus, and that's what he did. And here's the reality. Many of us live our Christian lives, and we say that we're followers of Jesus, but do we do what Jesus did? How can you say you're a follower of Jesus if you don't follow Jesus? That doesn't even make sense. Like logically, that doesn't doesn't compute. I'm a follower of Jesus. You're not a follower of Jesus because you showed up at church. You're not a follower of Jesus because you prayed a prayer one day. You're a follower of Jesus if you follow Jesus. And so let me ask you this question. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. You've been a Christian for a month, a year, five years, 15 years, and you don't have to answer it out loud, but have you ever told someone else about how to be a Christian? Paul's saying here, that's the why of my life. That's, that's why. I don't, I don't run aimlessly. I know the goal. Seek so and save the lost, the same goal that Jesus had because I'm following him. And he says the gospel gives us, gives us the reason, but there's another, another motivator here for him. It's not just that there's people that are dying and they're going to hell. Look at He also says because he wants to share in the gospel blessings. Look at verse 23. Those of you who take notes, you want another reasons to share in gospel blessings. Verse 23 says this. I do it all for the sake of the gospel. Okay, that's the what, what you do. Why? That, here's the reason, that I may share with them in its blessings. Now that's an interesting verse, especially when you read it in context. I become a Jew to the Jew. I become a Gentile to the Gentile to the weak. I am weak. Why? I do it all for the sake of the gospel. That, that what? Because Paul's already a follower of Jesus when he's sharing the gospel with people. You'd expect the verse to say that they may share in the blessings with me. That is not what the verse said. If you've got a copy of the Bible, you can look at your Bible, stick it up on the screen, put that verse back up on the screen, verse 23, so they know that I'm not making this up. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that not they may share, I may share with them and its blessings. Do you know what Paul's saying here? I do it for joy. I do it for the same reason that athlete is pursuing the Stanley Cup, the wreath. They think that having that is going to give them the ultimate joy, but that joy fades, and I know real joy. And real joy is to live on mission for Jesus. Now, here's the reality. Some people are Christians, and they think the Christian life is boring. You're not doing it right, FYI. <laughs> so if you think, like, hey, there's, this is just... I mean, I go to church, and I'm moral, and, and all those, and I'm going to maybe get involved in some cause. Maybe did. we had hundreds of people. I don't know how many people it was. Somebody will tell at the announcements. Serve at Southbridge Serves this weekend. You can go out and do those good deeds, and you can listen to the Christian podcast, and you can read your Bible. But if you never step out on mission for Jesus, of course it's boring. It's like if you just read the playbook all the time on a football team. It's like if all you ever did was practice, practice. Alan Iverson, by the way. I just can't get that. I can't quite get that high, but anyway. So Paul's going here. Here's the joy. The joy is living on mission. And that journalist, do you know what he said? Next, after he told that woman, hey, that's not a reason, he looks at the mailman. That's ironic, considering this sermon, the guy who delivers the news. <laughs> he says, Doug, mailman, says, why are you climbing these mountains? Let me read to you what he said. I have it here. I don't want don't to mess it up. He says, to be able to climb that high, and see that kind of beauty that nobody ever sees, it'd be a crime not to. Do you know what he's saying? Joy! I want, to, I want that experience. Do you know what kept Jesus Christ on the cross? It was joy! Another race analogy passage, you can read on your own later, Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2. Keep your eyes on the author and perfecter of your faith, for the joy set before him endured the cross, even its shame, The shame of the cross, he wanted joy. We're joy mongers. We want joy. God made us that way. That's why it's in our founding documents as a country. Life, liberty, you have the inalienable right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I think we call it pursuit because so many people are never going to get it. But we can win them to it, we win the lost, the joy. See, when you get this, when you get this sharing and that we get a blessing by living on a mission for Jesus, it burns a passion in your soul like it does for Paul here that puts us on a relentless, risk-taking pursuit of eternal joy. You want a second point? There's a second point for you. And I didn't just make it up just now just so you know. We've got a slide for it and everything. It puts you on a relentless, risk-taking pursuit of eternal joy. Because think about what he says here. I beat my body. I'm making my slave. I don't run aimlessly. As somebody who's forgotten the goal. And so he says to you, "Run! only one wins. Run to win. You play to win the game. So run that you may obtain it. Talking about a relentless pursuit here. And think about what he just said just before those verses we started off with. To the Jew I became a Jew. Go back to verse 20. If you've got a copy of the Bible, we got it on the screen. In verse 20, he says this. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. Okay, interesting. What does that mean? You're talking about you became a Jew to the Jews. Many Bible commentators think that the best commentary on 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 20 is 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24, which we'll put on the screen. And it says this. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. That's 39 lashes, I'm not a math guy, so you don't have to tell me what a great job that was. But I also see five times. Five times I received from... The reason why he did that, most Bible commentators agree, it's because he was submitting to the community because he wanted to keep sharing the gospel with that community. And so when you send him on a line, I'll take the lashes. Okay, okay, I try to put that in my world. I think to myself, I want to preach this message. Somebody's going to probably be mad. That's not my mission. That's not what I do. You send me an email. told the first service. I got a special file for those, but I'll read it. Like, sometimes there's good things to hear in all criticism. But an email, like, that's the worst that's going to happen to me if I preach a message you don't like. I'm going to get an email, Really? He got flogged. Have you seen the passion of the Christ? He ripped the shirt off his back, tear the flesh off his back. Now, Jesus had a Roman flogging, this is a Jewish flogging. 39 lashes, because at 40, you would be considered dead, by the way. And he did it once. Maybe once. Again? God, didn't I, didn't I do enough? Five times. But I thought he was going after joy. I thought he was pursuing joy. Then why would you do that? Do you know what? The, what's awesome about the Great Commission is it wraps it all up in there. Great Commission is Matthew chapter 28, read verses 19 and 20. It says this, Go make disciples of all nations, baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. And then it says, Look, behold, lo, depends on which translation you look at. They're also going, Hey, pay attention, pay attention. I'm with you always. Why does that promise have to be given by a God who's omnipresent. He's everywhere all the time. Because that passage is talking about God's manifest presence that you experience when you're living on mission, you don't experience just existing. What do you think it was like when Paul says, I want to know Christ, the power of his resurrection, victory over sin, victory over death, the fellowship of his sufferings, How do you think Jesus met him in that moment? Many of you in here have suffered to some extent because of the gospel. I'm not talking about you've suffered, okay? A lot of people suffer. Maybe you suffer just because this world is messed up and there's suffering in this world. Some of you have done dumb things and there's suffering in your life as a result of that. I'm not talking about either one of those. Some of you suffered for the sake of the gospel. You became a Christian and your family thought you were crazy. You lost a job because you wouldn't compromise because of your walk with Jesus. Like those things. And you don't wanna go through that. Nobody wants that, but Didn't you get to know Jesus in a different way in those moments? Think about Patton, the missionary. He talks about one time when the savages are coming for him. And he was hiding up in a tree and he could hear the muskets going off and they're calling for him. And he talks about in his journal years later how I long to go back to that moment because of your presence with me in that moment. It's for joy. He's not sadistic. He wants those people saved because he knows their eternity. He knows the storm's coming. And even if they don't, sometimes we think that like in Corinth, Paul was going around and all these people are just going, tell me how to get to heaven. Tell me how I can know Jesus. No, it's the same. Like we think our missionaries are like that. Like they just go out there and just, everybody's just waiting for them to show up. No, they're living in different cultures than us. It's the same thing as us. I'm trying to win them. So I got to learn about them. I got to learn their language. I got to learn what they like. I got to learn the questions they ask and so that I can speak truth in their life doesn't mean you go around shoving the gospel down everybody's throat. But you have eyes to see the opportunities to share the gospel because you've got a prize. The goal that you're going for is to win lost people. It's to win them, to victory for them. It's actually for their benefit. And you experience joy in the process. And what we see in the Bible is there's a bunch of people in the Bible that were risk-takers. I told you it's a relentless, risk-taking pursuit of eternal pleasure. A bunch of people that are risk-takers. Like, just think about it. Esther? If I perish, I perish. She doesn't know how this is going to. Like, we can read the book and be like, "You better go by faith." She's like us, living in it. You don't know how this. Is, you don't know how that conversation is going to go. You don't know what your boss is going to say. You don't know what, if your kids are going to follow Jesus. Like, you don't know how this is going to happen. So, it requires faith for you to live it out. Shadrach and his two buddies going into the fiery furnace says, to "Nebuchadnezzar, God can save us. I don't know if He will. He doesn't say that part, but that's implied. Says so God's able to save us, even if He doesn't." And talk about the manifest presence of God, if you know that story. You think about how God was present with them in a way in that furnace, they didn't know outside the furnace. Daniel in the lion's den, Peter when he gets out of the boat and he walks on water, they're risk takers in the Bible. Do you know what they call it in the Bible? Faith. See some of us think the Christian life is boring because we're not living by faith. Without faith it's impossible to please God. How can you be a follower of Jesus and not live by faith? So we get afraid, and we come up with excuses. There's people like that in the Bible, too. They're called the Israelites. If you're familiar with that story, they're about to go into the Promised Land. They send 12 spies into the Promised Land, and they come back, and two of them are like, the giants are big, but we got this, because we've got God. 10 of them are going, the giants are big, I don't think we should go, and they went with the majority. That's usually a bad decision, FYI. I know we live in a democracy, but read the Bible. doesn't usually go well. And do you know what God does? He gives them his wrath. Do you know what his wrath is? He gives them exactly what they want. Do you want to live an aimless life? 40 years. It's not a flood. You don't wipe them out. Not that time. Not lightning from heaven. You don't trust me? No. We might do that if we were God. He didn't do that. Okay, 40 years. Aimlessness. Wandering in the wilderness. And you'll never, you'll never get the blessing of the promised land. Even Moses. Paul says in this passage, I don't want to be disqualified. Remember, the positive is the prize. The negative is, I don't want to be disqualified. And think about how many of us do this as Christians. I'm going to show you a map of some Bible land here. Uh, Last week, as a a church, my wife and I are leading a trip to the Holy Land next year. If you're interested, you can email the the office. But I was meeting with a group of folks that were interested. We were talking about how awesome it is to swim in the Dead Sea. The bottom body of water you see here is the Dead Sea. And being in the Dead Sea, you don't really swim in it. You just float in it because you're so buoyant. A bunch of minerals in the water, you can't sink. Like, you literally go in, I stood up in the water. Like, you didn't tread water, I just leaned forward, and I was standing up in the water. But you know what they call it, the Dead Sea? This is a great Bible knowledge right here. It's dead, there we go. Not a trick question, I'm not trying to mess with you here today, okay? There's dead, there's nothing in there. No living things in the Dead Sea. You go around the Dead Sea, it's all desert and just nothingness. You can look up to the top, to the north there, that's the Sea of Galilee. Sea of Galilee is amazing because it's almost untouched. It's where Jesus, you know, did a lot of his ministries where fishing happens. So you see these fishing miracles. He walks on water there, and it's lush. There's a lot of green around it. There's mountains around it. And what happens is, is the mountains that from the north drain water into the Sea of Galilee, and then through the Sea of Galilee, it comes out down the Jordan River into the Dead Sea. Do you know where the water goes from the Dead Sea? Nowhere. It evaporates. And I don't tell you that so you know some Bible geography. I tell you that because that's the reality of what I experience in Raleigh-Durham all the time. There are Christians that listen to podcasts, come to church every week, they go to Bible studies, but they're not sharing their faith. Why do you think that the Great Commission says, teach them who is them? The people you led to Christ, your disciples, everything you've learned. Now, input is required. You should be learning and growing. It's not just trust Christ and then you're done. Like, no. You learn and you grow, and as you're learning and growing, you're teaching the people that you're leading to Christ about things you're learning and growing about. There's got to be an output. A lot of us are like the Dead Sea on there, that everything's input, 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 and we wonder why we're so dead, floundering, bored. Input, outflow, life you got one job as a follower of Jesus. Paul says here in this passage, he said, I do this. I be my body. I make it my slave. I do whatever I have to do so that I'm not disqualified. Disqualified? Well, Moses was. So you go, well, Paul, Paul, you wouldn't be disqualified. He said, I'm trying to show. I'm trying to show what it looks like to follow Jesus. So I want to make it clear. The word disqualified means to pass the test. In your own quiet time, you can go and look up 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 5. It says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. If you got one job to do and you don't do that job, you think you passed the test? What if you do a bunch of other good stuff? What if you're really nice and you do like went to Southbridge Serves and you're teaching some class somewhere about the Bible and all these Christians are learning a bunch of stuff? But you never, never do what you're supposed to do. Moms, what would you say to your kids if you gave them one job and you came home and they told you all the other good stuff they did, but they didn't do that job? They passed the test? But what if they memorized some stuff about how to do the job? What if they went to a class that told them how to do the job while you were gone? Then you'd be cool, right? You've got to do the job. And we have one, one, our why, our why is an eternal aim. It's leading lost people to Christ. Moms, I don't know what your goal is with your kids, but I hope you'll think about it today. And I hope that you don't just raise up moral people that don't swear a lot most of the time. That maybe have your values to get a good job and a degree and save up some money in their retirement account and live a meaningless life, I hope they see you taking risks for the sake of the gospel. And they decide they want to live that kind of Christian life.